Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Drive Nation podcast, episode two now. I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by Andrew Frankel. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Dan. How are you? We're not quite as close as we were as we were last time. Exactly. So we're in the midst of this COVID nineteen situation. It's rumbling on. Uh, the government guidelines say stay at home if you can. If you can't, keep at least two meters apart. We're taking that very seriously. Uh, we're twenty miles apart. At least. At least. Andrew's in his house. I'm in my home in Bristol. Um, we're doing this over Skype. Not something we've tried before. Uh, you'll have to bear with us if the conversation, therefore, isn't quite as you know free-flowing as we'd like it to be. But I think we've worked out a way that we can make it feel as natural as possible. Um, now, in the first episode, we outlined broadly what the format of the Drive Nation podcast is going to be. In our minds, it's going to be broadly 25 minutes of sort of news and chat between Andrew and I, you know, the latest car news, the latest motorsport, the stuff he and I have been driving. And then for another 25 minutes or so, we're going to deep dive into the most interesting posts on Drive Nation from the previous seven days or something. And if you haven't found it already, you can find Drive Nation on Instagram at drivenation underscore. If you don't know what it's all about, please go and check it out. Broadly, I think that's going to be quite a fun format, and the fo- the feedback that we had from the first episode was encouraging. Thank you, by the way, to everyone who did get in touch after that first episode. We had lots of really helpful feedback, um, and it, it was it was a very encouraging response. Lots of good, constructive criticism as well that we're we're taking on board. Now that format's all well and good, but it's no use to us whatsoever when there's precisely nothing happening in the car industry or any other industry for that matter. There are no new cars being launched. There's no motorsport. There is no news. Andrew, I don't know about you, but I haven't driven anything interesting for probably a couple of weeks now. 
Uh, well, no, me neither. Um, I've been driving the family golf to resupply the uh, the in-laws who are quite elderly and live about 45 minutes away from us. Um, so I've done that. I do have something interesting outside. Um, quite interesting. Um, and now that I have been officially um, registered as an NHS responder, um, I'm going to be using it to fetch and carry meds to various people over the, over the weeks to come. Um, so I, uh, I'll probably go and do a a post about that um, on Drive Nation sometime soon, as, as long as the telephone actually rings and they ask me to go and get some stuff. Um, so that hopefully will be fun. That's fantastic. So you're, you're one of the NHS volunteers, I suppose? Yes, it's not a particularly exclusive club. The last time I looked, there were 750,000 of us. But uh, yes, I mean, you, you know, I think at times like this, if you, if you can do something, um, you should, and uh, I am. Well done. And can you tell us what you've got outside? I've got a Bentley Continental GTV8 outside. Uh, <laughs> Bentley, in their in their rather enlightened way, um, decided to um, scatter their press fleet to the to the four corners um, rather than have it sitting in crew not doing anything. Um, so they very kindly uh, aimed one of these things in in, in my direction, um, and yeah, I'm going to put it to work. Um, and yeah, hopefully it might bring a smile to a few people who aren't expecting someone to turn up in one of those. Um, and obviously, you know, I'll have a nice time doing it and uh, I'll be able to get out and about. But more, more to the point, I'll just be able to do something a little bit useful in this, in the, in this terrible situation. Well done. A round of applause, I think, actually. That's, that's very commendable. And well done, oh, Bentley, hardly. as well, for making their, their cars available. Um, now, anyway, th- that probably outlines why our format that we are going to revert back to when all this is over is no use to us at the moment. So what we're going to do instead is... Record a series of specials, standalone podcasts, each episode dedicated to one topic that Andrew and I, and hopefully all of you listening, find interesting. Um, This first one is all about the Porsche 911. Next time, we could pick out another iconic car or a manufacturer, or it could be a racing driver or a circuit. Whatever we think is deserving of an entire podcast episode, it could be a guest. Um... The, the idea being they're standalone, standalone episodes, they're not time-sensitive, and they can live forever. Um, and if, if, I, if I could just briefly leap in, I think the other thing I would say is that if you guys um, you know, have great ideas, um, things that you'd like to hear us blather on about relentlessly, then by all means let us know. Um, as I think I said in the last DN podcast, I think one of the great things about Drive Nation is that we do have a genuine interaction with you lot. Uh, it's not just hopefully us, you know, lecturing you. Um, we are very, very open to ideas, um, and particularly depending on how long this situation goes on, we may be needing them. So, um, yeah, please get in touch. Let us know what you'd like us to talk about. And if enough of you say the same thing, then we'll obviously go and do that. Exactly right. So once this fairly miserable situation is over we do intend to switch back to um, our more topical format but we will continue to throw in the odd special just to mix it up so this episode is all about the Porsche 911 Andrew I don't think there's any one sports car that's more deserving of its own podcast episode than the 911 is that fair uh well it would yes I you couldn't really think what else it might be um you know you can argue that the 911 today has got nothing whatever to do with the 911 in that came out in 1963 as the 901 um but even so i think as a concept as something with an engine in a strange place 
with a strange configuration um, and a shape that we can all recognize. Um, I think it's uh, its influence on us as as enthusiasts, uh, its place in the uh, in, in the pantheon of great cars is, is absolutely unquestioned. Um, and I'm sure, you know, if there was one car in the world, one road car in the world that was deserving of a podcast by itself, the, you know, the 911 would, would have to be it. I couldn't imagine what else it might be. So we'll get stuck into it momentarily. Now, we're, we're, we're choosing the Porsche 911 partly because we know lots of people love it and we love it. And to all of you, hopefully this will be an interesting podcast. However, I also know there are plenty of people out there who have no particular interest in the 911 at all and think it's completely boring and have had enough of hearing and reading all about it. Well, to all of you, please do stick around because maybe Andrew and I will be able to enlighten you and explain why it's such a special car. If not, we're also going to highlight where the 911 has gone wrong um, what's not been so great about it over the years. We'll give it a bit of a kicking, so if nothing else you'll enjoy that bit. Um, Andrew, I'm going to ask the most pressing question first. Have you ever crashed one? Oh, have I ever crashed a 911? Um, I've spun a few. Um, <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear, oh, dear. I should know the answer to that question. I mean, you, you'd think that if I had, I'd remembered. I don't think I've ever crashed a 911. In fact, and someone will come back and say that they have. I don't, no, I haven't. I've never crashed a 911. I've come awfully close on a... Lo- oh, no, I have. <laughs> I do. I have crashed a 911. Yeah, no, I have. Uh, yes. Uh, I, I, the reason it took so long to come to mind is it's, it's something I've been trying to forget. I crashed... Yeah, this wasn't very good, actually. I crashed a GT2 RS um, in, I'm guessing, 2010. So the previous generation yeah. car. Um, and it was one of those... Dan, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Where the photographer says, just one more run. Oh, yeah? it's always that one. So what you're doing is you're, you're doing skids for the camera um, because that's what's required of you. Uh, it's not something, to be honest with you, that I, I, I massively enjoy doing. But, you know, with cars like that, people want to see the big yee shot. So you do it. And we were on some weird German airfield base. Um, and it wasn't very good for that sort of thing. There were lots of things to hit, as I, as I found out. Um, and uh, I'd been doing a few of these things and the photographer said yeah just one more run and, and you and I also know what photographers mean when they say just one more run what they actually mean is as many runs as I want you to do until I'm satisfied that I've got the shot um so I thought to myself okay I'll give them something to photograph and so I went for the I went for a really really big bun um and it was it was all going terribly well um until it went a bit too well and i suddenly realized that this thing was going to go around and there was quite a lot of hard stuff to hit um and i've always felt in sort of two minds about what happened next because i did i just nerfed something a bank or something um and it wasn't a big off and you know i think it popped around so the car was immobilized for a bit but it was certainly running again and doing its job later that same day um, but I can remember, on the one hand, if I just held, held on to it for another second, there wouldn't have been a mark on it. But if I'd lost it a second earlier, I'd have destroyed the car. So, yes, um, 
yeah, I think the only particular problem, I think the only reason that it actually was off the road for hours rather than minutes was because uh, it was obviously quite a rare car. They didn't have the bits on site, so someone had to go back to the factory and get them. But uh, it wasn't a big deal. I was massively embarrassed. Uh, there was particularly there was some on board at the time, which I've conveniently lost. Um, but it contains an awful lot of expletives. Um, but the guys from Porsche um, were very good about it. Um, Andy Preuninger, who most of you will know, who's the sort of you know Porsche GT motorsports department guru, um, was unbelievably nice about it, um, despite the fact that he continues to tease me about it to this day. Um, so yeah, there you go. I have crashed a 911, and quite, quite an important expensive one too. <laughs> yeah, if you're going to crash a 911, it might as well be a GT2 RS. Well done for fessing up to that. Um, not least because, in my understanding of it as a car journalist, it doesn't count as a crash if you can drive the car away from the scene. That's interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, you couldn't really drive this one because there was just this, there was this little radiator behind the front bumper, um, and yeah, and I, I don't even think I broke the radiator. I think I just pulled the hose off it. Um, but yeah, so so there was you know water and fluid and coolant all over the ground. So. Um, not only could I not drive it away, I, I, I was so utterly distraught um, that I that I'd done this thing, um, you know, publicly. Um, that I, I was in no mood to drive anything. I'm afraid. <laughs> okay, well, I'm sorry for doorstepping you with that question. Um, I'll I'll ask you an easier one, perhaps. Tell me, what exactly is it about the 911 that makes it so special? There we go. It's a big question, but if anyone's up to it, it's you. Oh, how long have you got? Um, I think it's one of those cars. I'm about to say greater than the sum of its parts. If, if, if you know, yeah, I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't vocalise it that way. Um, it, it was the right car at the right time, undoubtedly. Uh, even though it wasn't that successful when it first came out, it quickly got that reputation. Um, and I'm sure that's something we'll come on to as to whether it was deserved or not of being, you know, quite a tricky car. Um, but it was, you know, the, the packaging was fantastic. You know, here was a car. Um, where you know the engine was so far tucked away that you could actually have quite a spacious cabin and yet it's quite a compact car and I think that has been pretty much key to the 911 success over the years because it's never been although it is quite large now um, you know even c- compared to something like an R8 um, which let's not forget has um, two fewer seats it's still not a particularly large car and, and back in the day that's um, it, it basically it, it just kind of did it all didn't it it was a car that was it was fast it was massively fun to drive but it worked it had a decent sized boot in the nose it was comfortable uh, inside and of course it was so beautifully put together you could just use it as a daily driver and i think i think that has always been the thing hasn't it it was a car which was probably more rewarding to drive than most supercars i mean if you look at the stuff that aston martin and you know and ferrari are putting out at the time that sort of standard road car offerings um of the mid-60s, and then you look at the 911, which was a fraction of the price. Uh, okay, it may not have had the glamour, it may not have even had you know the looks of something like a you know a DB5 or a 250 GT, but my goodness, if you get in it and drive it, um, no question which um, would give you more fun um, on a decent road or, or, or around a track. And I think that that's probably the formula that endures to this day. Um, and what has always interested me about the 911 is why no one's ever tried to do another one. No one's ever come up with a car to convincingly rival it. Mm. And I've always thought that's because if you make a good car, uh, and let us say that car is so good it kind of starts a new class, then 
you know, everybody else in time will pile in because they just can't afford not to be represented. But if you make a car that is so outstanding that it becomes um, another cliche coming up, iconic, because I think it is, um, then people will actually shy away. And I think yeah, another good example of that um, in a slightly different genre is the MX-5. Mm. You know, the Master MX-5 are 30 years old. And yes, there's been, you know, there was the last MR2 and there's the Fiat Barchetta and things like that, but nobody's really had a proper concerted crack at it because I think, you know, it, it, such cars would only be seen to be sort of, you know, poor pretenders to that crowd. And, you know, and, and I think the 911 was so good. It addressed so many issues for so many people that, you know, it has been allowed to pretty much stand alone ever since. Um, and so it is, I guess unique um and i think that's probably also another reason that it has been so successful for so long and why we you know we we idolize it the way that we do i think over the years as well what's become apparent is the sheer breadth of ability that this car has so if you want it you you can have a targa with four-wheel drive and a automatic gearbox and it'll be comfortable and it'll be civilized and if you want it you can have a gt2 rs which is Probably one of the most thrilling road cars of the last 10 years. Or you can have a 911 GT3 Touring, a lovely interactive machine with an amazing engine and a manual gearbox. It's got this incredible breadth of ability. And that's before you start looking at the motorsport side. So it's a phenomenally successful racing car. And it's proved itself as a successful rally car as well. So... It just seems to cover just about every one of those sort of performance car bases in a way that I don't think anything else has ever done. Oh, I completely agree. I mean, it's, it's, it, is, it has done more in more fields than, you know, than any other car. I mean, if you think that, you know, uh, oh, okay, it was called the 935 at the time, but it was still very much a, uh, a 911-based car. This is a car that has won the more. It's won the Paris-Dakar. Um, it, you know, it got a hat-trick of Monte Carlo rally wins. Um, and yet, you know, most people who go and buy a 911 just go and buy it as their daily driver because, you know, they like the idea, they like the image, it, it, it fits with their lives and they just go and sit in traffic in it. Uh, you're absolutely right. It is the most astonishingly broadly defined car. You touched on this earlier. The very early 911s, they had and actually still have a reputation for being, well, dangerous. Is, is, that, is that justified or is it actually completely unfair? Um, it's difficult to say because not even I'm old enough to have been around at the time. Um, but you know, I have driven quite a few early 911s and by an early 911, what I mean is a short wheelbase car, really, um, you know, Mm. two liter engine, um, 1960s, mid to late 1960s. Um, and I've never been scared by one. And I, th- I think there are probably two things. To, I have two advantages, which advantages weren't around back then. Um, one is um, I, you know, I'm not coming to it blind. You know, I, I got into my first 911 well aware of the reputation of the 911, um, and also well aware of you know the techniques that are required to drive one properly you know the old slow in fast out thing and i think back then i think people just got in them and expected to behave like normal cars and they don't they don't behave like not even even if you get into a modern i mean i drove a uh, a cayman gt4 and a 911 cup car the other day and i went out and i drove the the, the, the cayman and um you know it was very happy in it um, did some reasonable times came back in and got into the cup car 
and was told immediately that if I drove the 911 like that, like I'd tried to drive the Cayman, then I'd just crash the car. You know, even now, you know, with all that technology, you know, 55 years on, you still have to drive them a certain way. And I know that, and back then they didn't. I think the second thing is, I just suspect that even the tyres that you put onto old 911s today are, are a great deal better than the tyres that they put on them back then. Um, so... You know, I think if there was an era when they were tricky, it's not the 60s, actually. I think it was the sort of the late 70s when they started to put, you know, the new generation of very low profile tyres on them. And to, you know, and to make sure they didn't oversteer, they put, you know, they widened the rear track. They put an awful lot of rubber on the back, um, particularly relative to the amount of rubber they had on the front. Um, so they understeered a lot. Um, but what that did mean is that if you did find yourself in a situation where the back broke loose particularly if you weren't on the power at the time um you know it started going and it tended to stay gone um you know particularly in the wet and you know i've you know the cars that i have found the most difficult to drive are things like you know scs g-series carreras that sort of thing um before they particularly before the 993 which had the proper first 911 to have a proper multi-link rear axle and sort of had a lot of those problems because i think what they did in the early days or the you know in the sort of 70s and, and 80s is they just chucked a lot of the rubber at the problem and tried to make sure that it would never oversteer um and you can't do that because all cars sooner or later will in certain conditions um particularly you know a 911 lobbed into a wet roundabout you know off the gas um and yeah unless you then get back on the power really quite quickly and are quite accurate with the, with, with your correction they can be difficult okay so imagine the scenario you're on a, a welsh mountain b road you know the road well you're in a what are you in let's say you're in an sc so what's that a early 80s car maybe le- very late 70s yeah late, late late 70s early 80s yeah okay it's a slightly greasy road you're pelting along you're approaching a right-hander. It's a second-gear corner. Talk us through what the archetypal old 911 driving style is and what, what's different about that compared to other cars. Okay, you, I, mean, I, I suppose it's, you, you have to adapt the way you drive to the car's strengths. Um, <clears throat> and with a car like that, clearly, um, you know, you've got not a lot of weight in the nose, a lot of weight at the back, um, which means that particularly in the wet, you know, under braking um, and when the weight trance is transferred forward, um, you know, you are going to run the risk of locking your front tyres, um, which they did a lot, um, and of breaking loose the rear if you try and turn in. So with that, you know, you just try and do as much as you could in a straight line and you just be very conservative and you would get into the corner um, quite slowly. But then, you know, as soon as you're in and the car is settled, then, you know, the car's strengths start to emerge, um, which is traction. And as long as you're back on the power, um, even those SCs, you know, you could get on the power early. And if the back moved, that was, you know, that was usually pretty okay because, you know, it it was moving under power, not under, you know, weight transferred liftoff. Um, And, you know, and that is why, you know, they they were still very effective on tracks because they would come out of the corners so fast and then carry all that speed down the straight to come. Um, So, yeah, it's just, you know, it's it's, it's the oldest 911 cliche of them all. It's just slow in, fast out. Get it all done in a straight line. Um, Be careful on entry and confident on exit. So when I when I described the Welsh B road to you, I had one one road in particular in mind and it's because 
when was this? This was in maybe early in 2008, and I just started in this line of work. And the very first 911 that I ever drove was a 997 GT2. Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so a bit of a sort of baptism of fire. Um, not what only was my, that like? Well, not only my first 911, also at that point, probably, I'm, I'm sure it was far and away the quickest thing I'd ever driven. And what I remember about it most is, you know, there are some cars that take you by surprise with how accelerative they are, that you, you go to pull an overtake and you find that you almost drive into the car that you're trying to overtake because they just thrust you down the road so quickly. Yeah. And that, yeah. that's, <laughs> and I distinctly remember that happening in that GT2. I think that, I suppose the point um, I make with that is that my first 911 experiences were in GT2s and GT3s and later on in 997 Carreras, so modern 911s. Um, and I wonder how, how much does that old 911 driving style still apply to, say, a 997 and then to a 992? Um, well, you know, I think that the modern ones let you get away with murder. I mean, you know, let's not forget... For instance, you know, the, the degree of electronic controls that these cars have. Um, you know, I have never been of the view um, that, you know, 911s, um, you know, certainly of the last 30 years, certainly since the 993, um, have been inherently even particularly tricky cars to drive, let alone dangerous cars. Um, and, you know, you will know every bit as well as me that, you know, if you're in a modern 992 and it's a wet road, and, and that scenario that you outlined for me earlier with the SC and you're in exactly that scenario with the with the 992, the car would look after you. You know, it wouldn't do anything untoward. Um, you know, the tyre technology, the suspension technology, the geometry that they use, I mean, it's all so clever um, that these cars... I mean, this is why I don't understand why people buy four-wheel drive 911s, unless they live in snow states or or whatever, because I still think that the Carrera 4 is a strong-selling car, because very deep at the back of people's psyche is this sense that these, these cars are still out to get you. Um, and they spend a lot of extra money, carry a lot of extra weight, and get in a car that is slower and less good to drive, and pretty much for no particularly um, great reason. Um, but just, you know, just getting back to your point about the, about the modern cars, I'd still drive them like 911s. Mm. I'd still be quite conservative on entry. I'd still be confident on exit. I would still, you know, because, you know, the weight is where the weight is. Um, the car is what the car is. And, and that, to me, is the way you drive those cars. Now, you don't have to anymore, um, but that's the way I've always driven 911s. And it may be that it's just a habit I've got into, but, you know, I just, I adapt myself to my surroundings and that's the way I like and choose and always have driven those sorts of cars. Yeah, um, I... When was this? Last summer, I was lucky enough to get back into Porsche GB's gorgeous 997 GT3 RS, Hebe they call it. Um, and it was it was so interesting to get back into a 997 after driving lots of 991s, um, also the 992, um, because you, it's it's remarkable how much more 911 y the the 997 feels compared to the much more recent cars. Your the whole time you're more distinctly aware of the the unusual weight distribution, the engine slung out way behind the rear axle where actually it, it doesn't want to be from a you know a sort of physics standpoint. Um, but in that 997, it just means that 
the car is this beautifully interactive thing that feels unlike anything else along a road. Um, And it really makes you think about your driving style and the way you approach it. And I think that's just got to be a huge part of the car's appeal. It's it's therefore maybe the ultimate driver's car because you have to think about really driving it rather than just, you know, leaning on the systems and trusting the car to do all the work for you. So here's my question to you. I mean, Hebe has, I think, 450 horsepower, Um, you know, and that's what you get from a Carrera S these days, I think. Yeah. So what was absolutely peak GT3 peak GT 10 years ago is now absolutely meat and two veg, yeah? Mm. So particularly given, this is what interests me, that, you know, your first experience of 911s were really crazy things, GT2s and so on. Um, And with... You know the experience you've had since then. You get back in a into Hebe, and you think, well, this is a GT car. There's a GT3 RS, but it's you know, in inverted commas only got 450 horsepower. Did you miss the power? Did you think that it was exciting enough, um, or or did you just think this is uh, f- for these purposes and for the and for the balance between um, power and you know and chassis that it was it was they got it about right. I will always maintain that that era, so we're looking at, what is that, 2009, 2010, is, will forever be considered a high point, a high watermark, when there was just the right amount of technology, tyre technology was where it needed to be, cars were reliable, they were usable, um, they weren't a complete pain in the neck to, to drive in everyday driving, but they still had manual transmissions, they still had hydraulic steering, they still had normally aspirated engines, and they had a level of power that you could actually deploy on the road without fearing for your license. So in answer to your question, I thought that GT3 RS was a moment in time where things came together perfectly. I didn't for a moment wish it had any more power, I didn't for a moment wish it had the torque of a turbocharged car. Um, and that's why, for me, I think that might actually be peak 911. Wow. Um, yeah, I, believe me, I understand everything you're saying. Um, and I probably feel similarly myself. Uh, I mean, I think what is remarkable is given the constraints that um, you know, things like legislation, but also to an extent Porsche themselves have put on the 911 since then, you know, particularly extending the wheelbase, um, the adoption of turbocharged engines, the adoption of electric steering, um, mm. how much of the character of the 911 has been retained? I think, you know, particularly with the 992. I have this theory, um, which I may or may not have bored you with before, is that great 911 generations, it always skips one. Okay, so if we start with, let's go back to the 964, which is pretty much where I came into this and there are exceptions and I'm not saying that any of these generations is a particularly bold one but I think most people would agree that the 993 was a better generation than the 964 and then you go to the 996 which I don't think anybody would say was a better generation than the 997 which followed it and now Mm. we have the 991 um, which I think was will be regarded as fine but not a patch on the 992. So I think it's a, the really great 911 generation skip a generation every time. And I think if you get into a 992 now, as you and I have both done, um, 
it's a very different sort of car, even to the 911s of you know, the 997s of 10 years ago, for all the reasons we talked about, for the wheelbase and for the engines and, uh, and for the steering. But there's still nothing you'd rather drive mm. in, for, for those sorts of reasons, for that sort of money, I'm sure. Absolutely agree. And also, I, uh, this is such an important point to me concerning the new 992. The simpler, the better. Take take all that chassis equipment that you don't need, Porsche dynamic chassis control and whatever else, even rear steering, I think, actually. The the best 992 I've driven is the very, very basic um, Carrera that Porsche GB has got on its press fleet. I think it's it feels more 911-y than the more expensive, more powerful, more complicated 992s that I've driven. And it's... It's interactive and enjoyable to drive at all speeds in a way that the more sophisticated cars just aren't. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, my, my jury is still a bit out. I mean, I completely uh, agree with, um, with what you say. Um, and I think it's a comment which, you know, you can apply to most generations. If, if, you, know, if, you, if you set aside GT3 product, uh, GT2s, or the sort of standard 911 offering. I have never, for instance, not once in my life, driven a 911 Turbo that I preferred to a standard Carrera. Um, and, you know, I would be surprised if that weren't the same um, with this generation. Um, in fact, had this virus not come along, I would now be, have been able to tell you um, whether the 911 Turbo subscribed to the, you know, the, 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 the same sort of thing. But that was one of the many pleasures that got canned. Um, so we'll have to wait until another day for that. I mean, you know, I've spoken to, um, to Porsche about um, this to Frank Wallace in particular, who's the new Mr. 911. And, you know, and he says very clearly, you know, we have taken on board um, comments people have made about 911 turbos being, you know, the fast 911, but not necessarily the evolving or the fun 911. Um, so, um, you know, and, and he is, you know, he is Mr. Motorsport. You know, he is the bloke who um, has been behind Porsche's racing cars for years and years and years. So if anybody can buck that trend that you refer to and create, you know, for instance, a 911 Turbo um, that is absolutely as rewarding to drive um, as a standard Carrera, then, then, then he's your man. So um, let's, let's wait and find out. Come on, then. Let's, let's have your favourite 911 of all time. Just one car, by the way. One. I don't want a, a list of six. Hebe. <laughs> No, Hebe. If, if it's road cars, it's Hebe. Um, you're, you are absolutely right. And, yeah, and believe me, I've, I've spent, I was about to say hours, probably days of my life thinking about this. And you think back to, you know, your 2.7, you know, Carrera RS of 1973, and that was an amazing car. Um, 993 RS, I owned one of those once, sold it for, I don't even want to tell you what I sold it for. Um, <laughs> and that was another superb cars. I am, uh, I, I, I love the current GT2 RS because it's so mad and yet it doesn't scare me like the last one I crashed. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's a Gen 2 997 GT3 RS. Um, I mean, a four litre car, you know, in, in, in your crazy dreams. But yeah, uh, and for without the wish to you know, repeat you for exactly those reasons um, that it was it marked the pinnacle where all that was good about the 911, you know, the short wheelbase, the hydraulic steering, the normally aspirated engines were still there. And none of the things that have, to an extent, and quite understandably, um, compromised and since came along. Um, yeah, so GT3 RS. Uh, if not that, then 
Yeah, 993 RS Carrera, I guess. Um, You're going to have to tell us about your old RS now. Um, do you do you do you wake up wishing you hadn't sold it, or or was it a, a box that you're glad to have ticked and move on? No, no, no. I wake up. I was about to say I wake up every day wishing I hadn't sold it. In fact, I just try <laughs> really hard not to think about the fact that um, that I sold it. So I mean, I bought it from Nick Four, who anybody who knows 911s will have heard of. Um, you know, probably the UK's best racer of 911s used to do ridiculous things you find all sorts of photographs of him waving wheels a foot in the air you know unbelievably sideways and um and i bought it because he used to one of the ways he used to do business was he used to go to the nurburgring uh, with one of these things give people a lift you know a, a passenger lap on a track day around the ring and usually before the end of the lap the bloke would have bought it <laughs> and so he knew that he, he could go and have a wonderful time at the Nurburgring over a weekend and you know and sell a a um an rs on the way and that's exactly what happened to me so i bought this car because back in the day um i didn't have children so i could afford it uh, and it wasn't even that expensive then and then i decided that what i really wanted to do was go racing um and so uh, with my brother i bought an old camaro um crazy car um but I sold the 911 to to pay for the Camaro. I did two seasons of racing, ran out of money, and at the end of that, I had no Camaro, no racing, and no 911. Um, and and to this day, the bloke who owns the car just occasionally gets in touch and taunts me uh, with the fact that a he still got it, and and, and the fact that he knows perfectly well that I know roughly how much um, it's worth and exactly how much I sold you sold it for. And no, I'm not going to tell you, but it was a pitiful amount of money. Um, but you know, I'm lucky enough to still get to try things like that these days. Well, I hope I hope you found it therapeutic to talk about that so openly. No, and I don't. Not, I don't. It makes me miserable. I wish you hadn't brought it up. <laughs> well, at the very least, the rest of us found it very funny. So, thank you for that. Um, now, clearly, this podcast is broadly a celebration of this car, but we're not being paid to do this. And we therefore have every right to give it a bit of a shoeing where we want to. So, should we have a little think about the most overrated 911s or the low points? Yeah. Um, overrated 911s, early turbos. Mm, interesting, um, 930. Particularly, you know, okay. Okay, early four wheel drive cars. So, 964 Carrera 4s. Um, mm-hmm. They just, okay, fine. They had four-wheel drive and uh, you know we, we've already been into that um, whether you should or shouldn't um but they did nothing for the car at all and it was a pretty primitive system um and it just made the car understeer um it was and that was pretty horrible early tiptronic cars oh my goodness um i can remember <laughs> an auto car i think we were quite sort of kind about them at the time um but uh, i suppose three or four years ago I, I drove one and it was so lame <laughs> it was you know it was slow and you know and you had to you had to work with the gearbox and it wasn't in a kind of fun involving way that you work with you know a nice manual box to make it smooth you just had to try and second guess its incompetence and just how long it would take to give you the next ratio um but i think if there is such a thing as the worst well there is 911 that i've um come across it was the 3.6 liter so the very back end of the 964 turbos um, and, and frankly, if ever there was a dangerous 911, 
that would have been it because it had so much lag um mm. and you know it had all you know the inherent problems of you know of 911s of that era which we have um we have talked about um and on top of that it had massive power massive lag you never knew when it was going to come in uh, it would understeer like a bastard uh, and if you tried to do anything about it like lift off um then you could find yourself in an absolute world of pain um still so, still two wheel drive at that point Still two-wheel drive, and, and most importantly, still single turbo. 993, you know, the leap, you think about it, you go from a 964, uh, rear-wheel drive, single turbo, you know, turbo the size of a football, um, you know, nothing below about 3,500, then wait, 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 oh my God, um, to the 993, two little turbos, four-wheel drive, easiest car in the world to drive. I mean, it's still not a, an enormously fun car to drive. Um, but massively capable, and you know, that car was the absolute start. I mean, that car is the prototype for the 911 turbos they make today. Um, just a mm. really, you know, cool, effective, efficient, fast, not necessarily that fun kind of car. Um, but what about you? You must have driven a couple, couple of clunkers in your time. Couple of clunkers, um, yeah. <laughs> so it was 2013, wasn't it? That the 911 was 50 years old. Um, and I, I can't remember if you were on this trip, Andrew, maybe you were, but a bunch of us were flown out to Vysak to drive a handful of old 911s. Um, and they had some gorgeous cars lined up a 901. There was a, an early G series, a 2.7. Um, I guess there was a 964 of some sort and the 993, that, that was the first car I drove. Um, and it was, and the first 993 I'd driven, um, and it was a Targa tip. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> Targa Tiptronic. And yeah, as you said, I mean, it, it's hard to drive it enthusiastically, actually. And it, ju- it just sort of undermines everything that's wonderful about a 911. Um, and then on that same trip, I drove that G series, a 2.7. And I couldn't believe how sweet it was, how gorgeous the engine was how wonderful it was to drive. Um, and so in that sort of in that morning um, on the roads near Vysak, I, I got to experience the highs and lows of early 911s. Um, let's move on to maybe the sort of thorniest 911 topic of them all. And that concerns the future of the 911. Um, so where are we now? We're in 2020. We're in the 992 is, I think, the eighth generation of the 911, and it's it's still a wonderful car, um, particularly if you spec it right. It's it's beautiful to drive, and that's even before the motorsport models have come along, the GT3s and the the GT2s and so on. But if we look five, ten, fifteen years down the line, how on earth? is the 911 going to stay relevant and stay a 911 when inevitably it's going to have to be powered very differently to the way it is today? Well, if um, if what you are saying, as I suspect, is how do you do an electric 911, mm. um, the answer to that question is not only do you not know and I not know, but Porsche doesn't know. Mm. Um you know, and you know, I had I asked Frank Vallas of that exact question. Um, you know, when will you do an, ele- an electric nine eleven? And he said, not until after I retire, because I don't want to be blamed for it. 
<laughs> and I think that tells you, you know, if the man who is responsible for the 9-11 responds like that to that question, I think that gives you some idea of the difficulties involved. Um, you know, you and I have both driven the Taycan. We know that Porsche can make an incredibly um, impressive electric car. They can even make an electric car that is sporting in nature. But what I don't think Porsche or anyone else has yet demonstrated is how to make an electric sports car, convincingly. A car, mm. not that is sporting, but car whose primary purpose um, is to be a sports car. And I just, I simply don't see, because particularly because of that engine um, and the way it sounds and, the, uh, and where it's positioned. I mean, that to me is the 911. If you remove that, you don't have a 911 anymore. Or... You don't have a 911 that I can conceive. Now, that may be because I've got a small brain, um, and goodness knows if anyone can do it, um, you know, the, 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 the lads and ladies of ISAC can do it. But it is so hard to imagine removing that. Um, it's like an artificial heart. No one's ever managed to come up with that um, that will last very long. And, you know, you take the heart out of the 911, and what have you got left? You've got something which looks like a 911. Um mm. So, you know, I think what will happen, um, you know, we all thought that this January, we all thought the 9992 was going to be the first hybrid 911. Uh, from what I interpret, from what I infer from what Valus has said, I don't think that's going to happen now. Um, because I know that the car has been protected. It has been engineered to take the hybrid. Um, but I don't detect any appetite at all for putting it in the car. Um, so I think that we will now be looking at you know, the next generation um, of 992 or whatever they call it, 994 or whatever. Um, and then, yeah, they'll be, that will probably have a hybrid in it because it will probably have to have a hybrid in it. But you're still, you know, you're still going to add weight to the car. You're still going to add bulk to the car. And, you know, I see on paper what you're gaining, but whether the results will be better to drive, it's, it's, it's a bit hard to see, don't you think? I completely agree. And when you look further down the line, you've spoken about the theoretical electric 911. The The problem is there's there's no way of making it rear motored, is there? That, 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 weir- that weird weight distribution just can't exist anymore, can it? What do you do? Shovel the batteries back there? I don't know. It's It, it seems like the, the characteristics of a 911 and the characteristics of an electric car are mutually exclusive. And the thing that makes it, I I think Porsche and the 911, I think Porsche has a particular problem in making the 911 electric because there there are several decades of heritage that a brand new sports car isn't kind of saddled by. Yeah, no, I, I, I do agree. I mean, you could do it um you could still have your skateboard layout and your batteries slung out low which will obviously do lots of wonderful things for your c of g and you could put the electric motor behind the rear wheels and therefore say that it's still a rear engine car and technically um you know you wouldn't be wrong um but i still don't think that's going to make it a night so here's a question for you if they do a car an electric 911 and you were the chairman of the board would you change the name would you say okay we've had a really good run boys it's you know we've had whatever it will be by then 65 years out of this um 
we can't do this car credibly. We can do a perfectly credible electric car that performs that same role, but we can't call it a 911, so we're going to call it something else. Or do you think that the 911 brand is so strong, so enduring, that it can actually survive even that? I think as a as a car guy, someone who loves cars and the 911, I, I, would, be, I would be very tempted to change the name. But... If I was the boss in charge, no, I wouldn't, because you, you can't kill a brand that strong. It's worth too much. So you just have to adapt it and hope that people accept it. Okay, so here's, maybe this is what they do. Um, Ford, earlier this year, or even late last year, um, produced, has shown its new electric Mustang. Yeah? So it's an SUV, it's, um, it's electric. I haven't driven it, but I've been in it. And it's impressive in an objective kind of way in the way that sort of um, lots of electric cars are impressive. I can't give you any kind of judgment about it because, you know, I don't do that from passenger seats. Um, but obviously what they're doing is they're keeping the nutty 700 horsepower V8, you know, GT500s and, 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 and other standard Mustangs on sale at the same time. So actually what you're doing, what they've done is they've produced two entirely different cars, uh, which other than their names are unrelated to each other. So maybe Porsche can do that. So maybe they can gently introduce the concept of an electric 911 um, and have a car that they can actually sell because, you know, let's not forget that people will increasingly be trying to legislate, you know, the cars we love off the road while at the same time keeping the purists happy with, um, you know, a car with, you know, a proper flat six motor in the back. What do you think? I think you're right. I think that could well be the blueprint for how these things work. And all I'll say is, I'm so glad it's not my responsibility to work out what to do with this. Um, and I also cannot wait to see how Porsche manages uh, this this very thorny issue. It's going to be fascinating. Yeah, no, I agree. Um I, I kind of can wait because I don't want them to manage it. I just want them to produce 911s. I just want them to produce cars with normally aspirated, well, not that they do that anymore, but you know, certainly with flat six engines in the back of the car. Um, and I want them to change the formula as little as possible. The car is already as big as I want it to be. Um, you know, clearly it can be improved. But if I was, okay, was going to do something to the 911 um, to make it more environmentally friendly, I'd just make it lighter. I would, and I know that's expensive, and I know that's a kind of easy thing for a journalist to say. But you know, ultimately, I think that's the way that you know cars are going to have to go, be they electric or petrol. You know, that is the way you actually save emissions. You you use less material to build the bloody thing in the first place, and then it consumes less stuff um, to get about. And also, at the same time, as we all know perfectly well, you know, the lighter the car, the better it is to drive. So that's what I would be piling all my thought processes into. You just you just decide that you know in terms of its evolution it kind of stops size wise where it is and you just take what you've got and you just lighten it and lighten it um without obviously at the same time compromising its you know its safety and everything else um and you know and then we'll still have a 911 well yeah i hope the the guys at, at visac have a, a kind of similar thought process although of course, eventually, the, the sale of combustion cars will be banned entirely and these things will have to be powered in some other way. Yeah, it's interesting. Well, that's not what they've said, is it? They've said that they're going to stop the sale of petrol and diesel cars. I don't think anyone has banned the internal combustion engine. And this is a little pet thought of mine, which, uh, you know, there will probably be any number of people listening to this will start laughing at because it's so totally impractical. But years ago, I drove a 7 Series BMW which had a switch on the dashboard 
um, which it had a V12 5-litre engine in it, as they did back then, and you could switch between petrol and hydrogen. And you could put petrol through your internal combustion engine, or you could put hydrogen through it. Uh, it sounded as good. Now, there was, because um, hydrogen is not as energy-dense as, as petrol, there was a performance hit. Um, and there are storage issues, um, because it has to be compressed to quite a substantial extent. But these, to me, are the sort of almost logistical issues that, you know, technology exists to get on top of. Um, you know, there is a way to have a clean internal combustion engine. Um, and I would love to see someone who knows far more about these things than I do, which is basically everyone, tell me why that's not possible and why we can't... It won't be as efficient, I'm sure, as uh, an electric car, but you know, you could still have a car that behaves in exactly the same way as a car with an internal combustion engine, um, but is powered by a clean, renewable source of energy. Yeah, and synthetic fuels are making real progress as well. So perhaps that's the solution, isn't it? There, there are scores and scores of very clever engineers, people far smarter than you and I, who are working on this issue. And history shows that engineers find solutions where they're needed. So perhaps there is hope yet. Now, we, we need to start winding this thing up. Um, so last question for you, Andrew. Can you pick out one drive in a 911 that stands head and shoulders above every every other one uh not without sounding smug no <laughs> well you're gonna have to sound smug we we want it um okay so uh yeah this gives you insight into in, into how lucky i've been it was i think 2012 um i raced a short wheelbase 911 at the lamore classic um wow I'd never raced at Le Mans before, um, and I was quite scared um, for all the reasons uh, you might expect. Um, a, it was Le Mans, and B, despite everything I've said on this podcast, I still thought that you know if you're actually racing it, a short wheelbase 911 might be quite a tricky thing to hang on to. Um, and this car was provided for me. Um, it had been prepared by Andy Prill. Um, Chris Harris raced it after me and it's now owned by Howard Donald of Take That fame. Um, And it was just the most exquisite little racing car you could ever imagine. And it was the most fantastic way to learn that circuit because it wasn't, it had a, it had a, obviously had a two litre engine and I think it was putting out about 185 horsepower. So healthy, but not crazy. Um, the only problem with it was that it started to wa- it wandered a bit down the straight, um, and so we just put the spare wheel back in the nose and gave it a bit <laughs> more rake, and that problem went away. And you know, the more when you're actually racing there, it's all sort of obviously it's massively high speed. It makes Spa feel like a go kart track because you're just rung out for such enormous periods of times, and then it's really fast corners flowing into really slow corners. That's the sort of character of Le Mans. Um, which, you know, is kind of what you wouldn't on paper want from a 911. Um, but it was, su- it was such an, an indulgent, easy, fun... It, it felt like the ultimate training car, to be honest with you. And I was slinging this thing around by the end of it um, and just having the time of my life. And, you know, as a way of being introduced to that circuit, as a memory to take with me and take away, um, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll treasure it forever. And my only sadness about the entire thing was that... 
you know, bloody idiot that I am, I was offered the car for not much money straight after the race, um, and I turned it down. <laughs> oh, you seem to have a few 9-11 buying and selling regrets. Nightmares, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, well, there we go. I think we could clearly talk about the 9-11 all day long, but we need to wrap it up somewhere. Um, so we'll, we'll leave it there. There you are, that's, that's us, that's Drive Nation, on why the Porsche 911 is such a special machine. Any any last thing to add, Andrew? I want to go and drive a 911. <laughs> well, you're going to have to wait a few weeks, I would have thought. Uh, yeah, let's hope it's, that's all it is, yeah. But um, be all seriousness, you know, it's... Uh, I, I, I think that if you are... If, there are very few things that make me feel luckier to be doing this job than the fact that, w- with reasonable frequencies, I get to drive Porsche 911s. Um, you know, be they... Um, borrowing a heritage car, doing something for you know an old car mag, or or much more often just doing tests for modern car magazines, and 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 just feeling that I'm remaining at the sort of coalface um, of where the 911 is, and just being able to chart that car's progress. You know, I've been doing it for you know a very very long time, um, and yeah, I just feel, I just feel blessed still to be able to do it because it is a car whose fascination for me um, has never worn off. I think it will endure for as long as, as they keep doing it. And you know, let's hope, you know, all we can that that's a very, very long time. Absolutely. Well, there we go. Um, I hope, hope you've enjoyed listening to this. Um, please, again, really do please give us feedback. Um, your messages are, are encouraging. They're interesting. Um, they give us plenty to think about as well. So let us know if you think this format worked. And also, which subjects we should have a look at addressing next time um please remember as well to rate the podcast particularly on the the itunes podcast app please give us a a rating and uh a, a little bit of feedback there as well it's it's really helpful it's actually really important so please do do that um thank you very much for listening and we'll talk to you again soon andrew thank you for your time no worries, Dad. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for bearing with us for another um, one. We don't know, obviously, how long we're going to be, have to do these Skype ones for, but I hope the format hasn't um, interfered too much um, with the sort of to and fro of the banter. And, uh, yeah, we'll be back in each other's houses just as soon as we can. Yeah. Thank you, and goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. Cheers. Bye-bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 